0: morning this is Cheryl Linker and I'm here with the Master Gardener Hour. Have a great Saturday morning planned for you guys. I've got two repeat guests on the show Bill Goldstrom and Charlie Brown and we're here to do round two of Saving Endangered Species. Good morning guys.
1: Good morning Cheryl. Good morning.
0: Good morning I'm glad y'all are here. Um, We had Last, a couple of weeks ago, when Charlie and Bill were on, we just kind of like left in the middle of our conversation and tried to come up with a lot more to talk about on endangered species and some of the work that they've been doing. So, Charlie and Bill and I um, all work at the volunteer at the Chattahoochee Nature Center, which is a haven for native plants. So, the native plants there are just a really smorgasbord board of plants. Tell me a little bit, Charlie, where some of those plants came from and were they originally there or were they brought in and planted at the Nature Center?
2: All of the above.
0: All yeah. of the above.
2: <laughs> All of the above. Yes, yeah, sir. Most of them are originally found there somewhere around the area. Okay. But basically, what we do as a master gardener project there that all of us work on is try to keep up what's called their butterfly gardens. And in doing that, we have to actually move some plants to different areas so we create the habitat necessary to support the butterflies, both nectar and host plants. And so we have to move a few plants, you know, from time to time. We also have to supplement with other plants. We even have a few non-native there just to extend the season for for the butterflies and for the color
0: for the butterfly attraction yes so all the trees the large trees obviously were there when when did you first go to the nature center and kind of cruise the grounds and see what was there well i put off
2: doing that for many years after i came to uh atlanta area i've been to the atlanta area a little over 30 years now and uh I was so concentrated on work for most of those 30 years that I didn't get out into nature near enough. And so it's it's only been the last uh, six or seven years that I've been actively involved with the uh, Chattahoochee Nature Center. And uh, I knew that I wanted to spend time with nature, and that looked like a good place. It was close to my home. And I got to know some of the people there. They had great people there. The passion of the people there running the place is important to me. And so when I see that passion, I want to get coupled with it. That's sort of a key effort for where I volunteer and spend my time is I like to deal with people who are passionate about native plants. And and who understand the connections between native plants and the habitat because that's very critical.
0: Well, Bill, you were there when they did their big rebuild, right? And yes. they built the new Discovery Center. Yes. So was there a master plan to... Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, kind of like, did they move plants that were already there when they did the construction of the Discovery Center?
1: That was part of the effort. Uh, they they knew that they were going to be uh, taking out some significant uh Frankly, trees. Uh, that that was the concern. You can always put back shrubs. You can always put right. back flowers. They're not very hard to move. Uh, but but some of the the trees uh, were a concern. Uh, you can't really move them, but you can you can replace them. And, and put their replacements in in the uh, the holes that were left.
0: Okay, so the if they cut down, like, for an example, a white oak, they would replace it with another white oak
1: and they've done on that. the property? And they've done that. Uh, the, uh, the the trees are smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as a matter of fact, the, the Master Gardener Group is now in the process of labeling the trees and major shrubs on the property. And um, the last time we were out, putting down our stakes uh we were identifying things like georgia oak white oak red oak so the the oaks the, there's an oglethorpe oak on the property which is fairly rare um,
0: is oglethorpe native to north georgia
1: it's native oh,
0: uh, i mean I, I think of oglethorpe as being like around darien or savannah or uh, it's probably like that. i
1: i, I sh- i'm gonna go out on a limb i think it's kind of more a coastal plain kind of Okay. Plant, uh, is it doing, doing well is it doing oh, well
0: with the nature snake? it's
1: it's going gangbusters uh, it's um, down by what we uh, what they call the pavilion uh, down by one of the major ponds and uh, it's, it's been there for years and years and years um, and there are no issues with it at all
0: okay so the master plan being to build I mean I guess when my first my first first experience with the nature center was probably like 28 years ago, and it was when there was no discovery center. There was no upper parking lot and building, and the natives, the thing that amazed me and that I enjoyed the most about going there were the large, gorgeous trees that were on the property that were by the old, you know, walk-in where the snakes were in the cages, and they had the little gift shop. Right. So well,
1: it's it's interesting that the nature center I think that most people identify with is the relatively open areas like the butterfly garden, uh, the area between the Discovery Center and the pavilion. Um, it has the majority of the the flowering plants. Uh, down there but to me perhaps an even more interesting part of the nature center is out on the boardwalk where you have uh, trees and shrubs and plants that grow in a, uh, a wetlands kind of environment so you see a whole different palette of plant life down on the river or you can go beyond the the, the regular part of the nature center up into the the hills
0: yeah those those are, and that's a great and all eye. of
1: a sudden uh you're looking at yet again a different palette of plants um and those are native. I mean nobody's been in either one of those areas uh artificially introducing something so uh, as a matter of fact, Charlie uh, a few months ago uh found a single individual of um, a little shrub called New Jersey tea. It was just sitting there, minding its own business, and uh, about a week after we were there, it flowered. He sent out pictures of that. Yeah, those are great. It was uh, it was like, well, okay, where did this come from? You know, I mean, it's here it is, New (laughs)
0: Jersey.
2: Well, it it is native. Native, it was named by someone in New Jersey the first time it was named, which is why I sort of got that common name. But uh, one thing I'd like to say that we sort of beating around a little bit here is the difference between native and indigenous. They're sort of similar but they're a little bit different. Indigenous. Okay, let's
0: go for that. Yeah. Our listeners would, that's important, okay. very important. Okay, indigenous
2: just means you find it naturally in that area. It, it, it happened there. You didn't sort of transplant it there from the lot next door, okay? It, it grew there by itself. It got put there by itself, by the animals, by the birds, by the environment in doing that. And so you have indigenous plants there at the Nature Center, a lot of them in doing that. And another thing that I wanted to sort of follow up on a little bit is we talked about, hey, sometimes, You've got to take a tree out for some reason, landscaping or whatever. And it's not necessary at all that you put the same tree back. You sort of made that comment a little mm-hmm. bit earlier. You take a look at habitat. And, for instance, Chattuchi Nature Center has 127 acres. Okay, So there might be plenty of white oaks. You, you use that example, for instance, you know, on that 127 acres to support the habitat, the wildlife, and, and, and everything that's there. And so you might choose to put a different plant there to sort of support a different element of nature in doing that as opposed to replacing the white oak with another white oak. And so, again, uh, that's important that when you look at, you know, what you're doing for – think about habitat. You know, think about what you're supporting out there. Uh, the larva, the birds, the the animals, you know, they all need a habitat. They, they need water, shelter, food. And so make sure that you've got those elements there for them so you create a natural environment.
0: So back to the indigenous native. Indigenous could be non-native. Mm-hmm. No.
2: I think of indigenous as sort of a subset of native. Okay, as opposed a to subset. the other way around. Right.
1: For, for, I mean, a, an example might be a red maple. Red maple is a native plant to um, uh, North America, um, and I think it's – I won't go any further than that. But but you can find it from Canada to Florida, all right? However, um, when, you, when you consider putting a red maple somewhere, you have to be very careful because you don't want to take one, for, for instance – for folks in Georgia here, you don't want to take a red maple that has been grown in New Hampshire and bring it down here to Georgia, because that tree has grown up in an environment where it's cooler, mm-hmm. where it's less humid. Um, the, the,
0: the, it's the, not going to survive as it, well. It's,
1: it's not going to do as well. So, indigenous means that red maple, which is a native plant, grew up around here, evolved so, here, basically.
0: Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. So that's. That, that that kind of clarifies that. So the 127 acres. How many different species of plants? Natives are there. I mean, if you just give me a guess.
1: <laughs> oh, gee, no, just give me a guess. I don't know how
0: you'd ever do that. We're going through the native, the naming process there, which I think is key for the education for the people that go to the nature center. Because people always, especially trees to me, people want to, they see a tree, they want to know what kind of tree it is. So, I mean, needless to say, there are more than um then the three of us can count and or remember at that point. Well,
1: just uh, the uh, the list of trees that we have currently identified as needing a label or potentially needing a label is around 125. Okay. And I don't think we've completed that list.
2: And so there are literally thousands of species of mm-hmm. plants
0: mm-hmm. there
2: right. at the, you know
1: on those grounds. There's no doubt about those, it. And those are just the big trees. Yeah.
0: Okay, guys, in your opinion, what's the rarest plant on those 127 acres at the Nature Center?
1: No question. It's uh, a plant that is native to Georgia, but it's not indigenous to this area. The common name is Florida stinking cedar. Okay. Sounds exciting, right?
0: Yeah, it sounds like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds uh, like it may smell like Florida. But,
1: but actually, very few people call it that. It, the, the, the botanical name is Terea taxifolia.
0: Oh, I know that tree. <laughs> I know where it is. It's a nature center. Okay. Well, all right, then.
1: Uh, but that is, if not the most rare plant on the property, it's certainly a candidate for, for the most rare. It grows uh, natively at, at the present time in a state park on the Georgia-Florida uh, border. Okay. Um, it it kind of got forced down into that area during the last ice age, and uh, that's where it's wound up. But there are very few um, natives in existence in its home location right now. So the the, the bulk, I think, of the terea are are in safeguarding sites um, further north.
0: Okay. Well, it's good to know that we're um, taking good care of it, and hopefully. We've got so much rain in Atlanta this summer.
1: I don't know if it likes rain.
0: <laughs> I just think, I really think, I don't know what's worse. You know, it's almost like we always learned in master, being a master gardener that plants, when they were put under a lot of stress and a drought, that, you know, it sometimes, you know, made them stronger, made their root system stronger. You guys agree with that?
2: Well... It does. It sometimes makes them reach deeper with their roots. Okay. Right. And so in that case it makes them stronger.
0: So now what we're facing is our plants floating away. So and coming up by their roots. But let's we're gonna kind of regroup here and we're gonna come back and take a little break and we'll be right back with the Master Gardener hour.
3: Quick Stakes. That's Q U I K Stakes Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuffs Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to
0: fork. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening.
4: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Hey, this is Cheryl Linker, and I'm back with Charlie Brown and Bill Gulstrom, and we are talking about natives and rare plants that we need to protect. And the last time the guys were on, we talked a lot a lot about Doug Tallamy's book, Bringing Nature Home. And this book, just I finally got it. I'd read portions of it now I just kind of plowed into it and about every other page because I'm really bad on books and every other page is like dog-eared with something that I thought was pretty profound and I you know we talked a little bit about his list his best plants and the way the reason they're the best plants Charlie, why don't you tell us why they're the best plants again? Yeah,
2: let, let me just make one mention about, about Doug. He's from the University of Delaware. He's an entomologist. We talked just a little bit about him last time. I have heard him speak now four or five times, and it was a little bit different every time. I learned a little bit more every time. A lot of it was very similar because he just expanded on his researching. And I would encourage your listeners there all over the country, I'd encourage them to find an opportunity to hear him speak because he is another person who's passionate about it. He got into it not from the native plant route, as as you could see. He's an entomologist, a Ph.D. in entomology. And so he got into there from the insect portion of the world and what supports those insects who then feed the birds, who then, you know, part of the food chain and, and create the habitat. And he's very passionate about what he does and what his research is, and it's really great to hear him in person. So, not Google him and in, in University of Delaware, Doug Tallamy, and he's got his own website. And take a look at that and see what his speaking tour is. If he comes to your area, be sure and get an opportunity to, to actually. You know, and if you firsthand. have
0: if you have any um, connection with your state Master Gardener group, the time that I've only heard him speak once, but he spoke at our state Master Gardener convention, and that was great. So you might have some clout to pull him in to a, con- a convention of that magnitude to have people right. from all over your state. It, yeah, if you in. don't find
2: him in coming around your area, then you need to work with some other people to, to try to get him there because he does move around on the speaking tier, and he does a great job. So he, uh, he motivates you tremendously just by uh, being in his presentation and, and understanding what kind of – real research he's done i mean it's not just a a hypothetical thing he's done research with graduate students going out and counting bugs (laughs) counting birds uh, counting all the, the things that come to the different native plants when you put them there and that's very important in doing that
0: and i think the thing that was you know we're all kind of or at least people are learning about natives and starting to transition to putting more natives on their property and i thought the thing that was hopeful for a lot of people that can't go out and totally relandscape their property that he really emphasized to bring, you know, three, four, five natives onto your property and just start small. And you can start small and bring, you know, get those established and then, you know, transition over time. And what a help that that is.
1: Well, you can can start small and you can also sort of do what I'm trying to do in my yard is when I see now – um, something like an andina sitting in my yard because you know people bought those because they're pretty. Mm-hmm. They put out nice red berries. They have nice fall color. They're easy to grow, um, but but they're horribly invasive. Um, so I'm kind of in a mode of okay. I, periodically, I will go out and select something like that and kill it, and then put in a native to replace it. So I'm sort of replacing the non-native exotic invasives with uh, plants that should be there uh, naturally.
2: Sounds like a win-win. It, okay, I hope it is. <laughs> because you know. those invasives are going to spread to neighbor's yards and into the woods and uh, actually choke out the native plants. And the, the birds will come and eat those berries. You know, They're bright red, they're a mm-hmm. food source for them, and they're going to spread and choke out some of our natives. And so it might be okay for that one little piece of the food chain that's right there then but it's damaging to the whole food chain and, and the habitat that's around there.
0: Okay, here's the theoretical question. If you're trying to do this transition, if somebody say in, I don't know, I'm not going to go as far west, I'm going to stay in the south, and say somebody in North Carolina is has a lot of plants on their property that aren't native, and they want to do this transition, is it better to remove all the non-natives like as quickly as possible? Or do you think, I mean, from Charlie's perspective, it's like the quicker the better because they're going to spread and invade well, if and they whatever. If they're
2: invasive, it's better to, to go ahead and get them out of there because they are spreading, okay? But there's a lot of non-natives that aren't very invasive, okay? They're pretty and they're right. bought here for ornamentals and right, whatever. Right, right, right. And in fact, it's nothing wrong with having some of those in your yard, Right. okay? And most people, you know, even native plant officiados, okay, <laughs> have a few non-natives around sprinkled in with them. The, the, the key is to have enough to support the habitat, and essentially what we've done in this country, and that's one reason you want to hear Doug talk a little bit, too, is if you just fly over an airplane, and you mentioned that before we started talking, and you mm-hmm. look down, you find vast stretches. I mean, like 80, 90, 95, 98% of what you see down there is non-native, and if you fly over cities and uh, urban landscapes in doing that, you see a couple percent at the most, probably less than that of native plants down there. Most I think people, that was
0: his number in the book yeah. was like 97 yeah. percent.
2: Mo- most people non-native. have put in yards grasses, which are non-native. Okay, and and that's 95 percent of their yard is grasses. You know, as opposed to other things which would support the habitat in doing that.
1: And and I think part of that too is it 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 can't be an effort by a small group of, of individuals because you, you wind up with what they call islands. And and the plants cannot survive on islands. They need large stretches of you native mean the plants. insects the insects and the birds and uh, i mean right. even some birds right you, you you need large stretches of land in order for them to have the correct habitat for them to thrive not just to live but to thrive and that's really what you want so it it's an effort by communities to to take it under their wing to have most people do a transition into these native plants so that the the animals can have a continuous path for miles, mm.
2: Okay, you need continuity, not just islands, in, in doing that. But, but but every little bit helps. Okay. Well, you, yeah, you know, I mean, you know. You what made me think, right? when you
0: said that, the continuity, not the islands, you know, it made me think of a developer. A developer that's going to go in and build a new neighborhood. I mean, yes, it, I mean, it could be a large neighborhood, you know, two, 300 homes. I mean, that's a lot of land. Would that, if they did that properly... Would that be considered still an island? That's still an island. It's still an island. Right. But obviously, it would be better if someone was educated and would, you know, really come in with a plan rather than just you know clear cutting and then replacing with turf.
2: Yeah, we're starting to move in that direction. Some of the developers even are leaving what they call some natural spaces when they do these larger developments. We need more of that, and we need those connected. So if they leave large uh, bear, you know, islands around, but they're c- continuous around, say, the edge of a development, and they connect with the next development, and so forth on down through there. If we start moving in that direction, then we're moving the country in the right direction. We're moving the uh, the habitat in the right direction.
0: And you know, just from an expense standpoint, from being a developer, I mean, I mean, you think you've got to, if you're going to just like demolish everything, you've got to replace it. And wouldn't it be simpler to leave some of the existing land with the existing plants and work around that? Well, I mean,
1: I, I don't if from a developer's point of view, I'm not sure that that's right. Yeah. I, I think for them probably
0: it's, quicker to just cut it's it down. And to go. cut it
1: down and build your structure and plant some grass, and then they're out.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. I had a crazy, crazy bug story. I just was up in Newport and I went on a sail from Newport to Block Island, which is like 13 miles off the tip of Long Island and about 25 miles out from Newport off the, um, Rhode Island coast. And it was crazy. We went out to dinner one night and as we were walking in this restaurant, We had walked from where our boat was docked, like, a couple of miles to go to dinner. And we sat down, and this lady kind of mumbled something when we walked out, and she said, don't sit outside. The beetles are insane. So I went, okay. So we said, let's go sit outside. So we went out and sat outside. We were down in our seats for, like, you know, two minutes, and we were covered in Japanese beetles covered in Japanese beetles so we brush them off brush them off and then we go inside and they are still they've got you know plastic tarps over the great view of the waters down so that the beetles won't come in they're all over the restaurant I mean I've never in my life seen so many Japanese beetles and I thought what's going on and they said there was this there's a seven-day period in the black island area that all the beetles come up and they hatch and they just go crazy trying to find their way home so i was just thinking about doug's book and the japanese beetles because they're kind of a unusual creature that doesn't they've kind of converted to going on non-natives plants is the way i understand it is that right Anybody know?
2: Well, I'm not an entomologist, but <laughs> my, my my comment would be something like this: the, the problem is when you introduce a non-native insect like to our area, they don't have the same natural predators as our native insects do, and so what you do is you create this large imbalance. Well, there where,
0: was certainly a large imbal- and, and, imbalance and, in on Block Island, and
2: that's what you were experiencing in our with our native. Uh, insects as well as our native plants, there's a natural order there to where, you know, it's it's like a, uh, uh, I guess, electronic warfare or something like that. I'm electrical engineer by training, so I think about that. And so you come up with a great new radar and somebody comes up with a great new jammer, okay? okay. <laughs> and so over the years, it sort of evolves to where there's no technological edge of one over the other. So the plants and the insects uh, and all the other animals that are out there have evolved together. And there will be slight bumps in variation, but not the kind you get with the invasives, okay? So when you get the invasives in, they just get out of control. And so in our periods of evolution that we talk about, like with invasive plants that Bill mentioned earlier, it's not years to get things in control. It would take literally eons before Those were evolved into our natural system in the same way with some of the insects.
1: Well, I mean, a a great example is something that's uh, ravaging the East Coast hemlocks, uh, the hemlock woolly adelgid. Uh, That came from Asia, and and, uh, I'm not exactly sure where in Asia, but in its native locale, this insect is kept in check by insects that eat it.
0: Right. So, right. so there's
1: a balance. So the, the uh, that Asian population is stable and everybody's happy. Well, when it's intrad- when that beetle was introduced here to North America, it had no uh, predators, uh, native, non-native, nothing would eat it because nothing knew about it, and it has sort of decimated the um, the eastern hemlock because of that, um, and and there has been this mad scramble to try and find some um, some kind of insect that will will do the same job as as the Asian. Uh, oh, that's a good species. topic
0: to talk about. Is how are these guys going to find a specific insect that's going to eat those guys? Well,
1: they found it, and and the insects are being grown um, in in laboratories up and down the East Coast, and and with limited success.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get back to these. Uh, Hemlock-eating, woolly... Adelgents. Adelgents. Be right back. <laughs> Moms, dads, listen to my radio program, Homeschooling for Today, on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where you'll learn all about how to homeschool on America's web radio. This
3: is Michael Ganot with the Middle East Research Center Limited, bringing you insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security, every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
0: Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office.
4: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on WebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Good morning. This is Cheryl Linker again, and I'm here with Bill Gulstrom and Charlie Brown, and we are talking about... Um, all kinds of things today, but right now we've recently been talking about the... Bill, help me.
1: Hemlock woolly adelgid.
0: Hemlock woolly adelgid that is eating the eastern hemlocks in the United States. And we were talking about, you know, actually, we need to figure out who the predator of this creature is. So let's talk about that a minute.
1: Well, they know um, the... the, um the, the, the bug folks do know uh, various predators for the adelgid, uh, they're, and they're growing them in various labs, um, at, at least uh, in Georgia South Carolina and North Carolina, um, and they do have success where they're introduced into a hemlock population that has the adelgid uh, in it. Um, they, the issue becomes one of, at some point in time, these bugs that prey on the adelgids, Start to run out of adelgids because that's all they eat. Our hemlock will the adelgids, so all of a sudden now the the food for these predator beetles has gone away. So the predator beetles die. Well, then the the adelgids come back because now all of their predators are gone.
0: Well, I mean, so wait, it's, it's Let's talk a, about this. Yeah. How do other insects <laughs> stay like checked and balanced, and this this can't?
1: Be- because they have, as Charlie said, they have grown up together. For hundreds of thousands, for millions of years, and they are so
0: saying this new relationship is totally out of balance. It's,
1: it's ten
2: years old. It'd take millions of years before it gets in balance, and you might not like what you see when it right.
0: finally
1: happens. <laughs> <laughs> the, the The big question they they've been they, these beetles have been uh, under cultivation for for a large number of years, partly because the uh, the folks that are doing the study. Want to make sure that the uh, the predator beetles only attack the adelgids. We don't want them going out and attacking some kind of useful insect uh, that we need for pollination so purposes. And it's
0: one beetle eating another type beetle. But it's yeah. It's a beetle, or
1: at least one insect. One yeah. insect eating another. Oh, but animal. do you know
0: what the is? is that other insect a beetle?
1: Uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't know. Okay. I'm okay. Not, I'm not.
0: Okay. Um, That's really it's interesting. So why? When the when this guy came to the United States, what did it eat in, in Asia?
1: Well it would it would attack the uh the hemlock population in Asia. But there were these predator beetles in sufficient quantity that would then go it, after is the Is that adelgid. the
0: same one that we're trying to get to live here? I
1: I, I would imagine it is.
0: Okay, that's okay.
1: All right. so it would but, have to be but They'd we have don't, to
0: have somewhere to start from. But we
1: don't have a native stock of these things. All right. So so the, the 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 adelgid is is just is still running kind of rampant. Right now the best the best thing I think we have are our chemical solutions uh for the adelgid. Um but you can't treat a forest with chemicals. Uh, what
0: chemical has been used?
1: Uh the one that I think is used with Best success is imidacloprid, which has to be injected into the ground. It's a systemic comes up through the tree.
0: So if I have eastern and if our listeners have eastern hemlocks,
1: what a, what should they
0: what should a homeowner it, do with something like this?
2: It's very expensive per tree. That's mm-hmm. one thing, you know, which is why you can't go do a whole forest even if you had the manpower to do it. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that uh, not only is is expensive, uh it's might have unintended consequences too. You know,
1: yeah. they're just like the, the predators sure. in doing that. Yeah, right. So. The, what you can, the the homeowner. So, if,
0: what what do we advise homeowners to do when they call about this? Uh,
2: they need to talk to. It's again, they need to talk to their local extension agents or the experts in their area because it's a little bit different for each area. That this uh this particular pest has been spreading (laughs) and is still spreading, okay? It's spread now from the northeast and is actually in North Georgia. It's been seen in North Georgia and of course there's concern. a couple of years. Yes, there's concern now of it just continuing to move. Okay, we're about to get out of the hemlock range, <laughs> and we have those around Atlanta here. A lot of a lot of the eastern hemlocks that people have around Atlanta, they're not really indigenous here. They're more of a mountain right, type right, tree, right. but they do well here in cultivation. Right. But, but the concern is, of course, even those that have put them here in cultivation have them in their
0: yards, like you were saying. And they're gorgeous. And, and they're gorgeous. Want, they're and beautiful. They shade. But yes. one,
1: one thing that's working in our favor is we are fairly far away from from the forest where the bulk of the adelgids are hanging out. And it would take some effort for them to come down and find individual trees, because we're talking individual trees. You might have one in your yard. I live 10 miles away from you. I've got a couple in my yard, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, th- another thing that you can do is is the adelgid also responds to what we think of, might think of as traditional insect uh, control, uh, like insecticidal soap. If your tree is small enough and you can spread and you have adelgids on it.
0: You can smother them.
1: You can spray with insecticidal soap, and that will take care of the adelgid. So I mean, there's so they're not magic. like a
0: bore; they live on the outside.
1: They're sap suckers.
0: They're sap suckers. So
1: they they will lodge between the the needle and the branch, and and do their job. So the
0: insecticidal soap would totally work on something it, like that, and it does. If you caught it,
1: and, and but the tree also has to be of a size where you can. Spray it with soap, right, you know. Right. I mean, some of these hemlocks get to be 40 50 feet tall, so
0: right. they're hard to cultivate in Atlanta. I remember when I originally did the landscaping in my yard, I put I think 30 or 40 hemlocks in my upper yard, they did beautiful for the first two years, and we had not a drought back in 1996 we had a heat wave that it just got brutal 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 hot and i lost all of them but like eight in those eight have lived you know 20 years and are fine but i lost all of them just from heat so i mean it's hard to cultivate here but i tried 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 my best we've got to eat yeah i know and now they're big and they're great <laughs> You know I tried to get you guys to commit last time to telling me about some of your your plant digs and your rare and cool things and the coolest things that you had ever saved so can I ask that question again put it out on the table and tell me each of you what the, the the plant, Story that you're the most proud of.
2: Well, let me start with a bigger picture first. Okay. Okay. It 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 takes a village.
0: Okay. Yeah, it does take a village.
2: (laughs) And so in that sense,
0: Charlie, you didn't go out by yourself with your cape and save save something great. It takes
2: a village. There's a network. We talked a little bit of that about that before. You know, there's a lot of organizations involved. It takes land that can be protected and uh, and and looked after, and so people and it doesn't get out of control so people can't go in and destroy the work that you've just done or something like that in doing that. Uh, it takes a lot of dedicated people in doing that. Uh, Bill and I have both been involved a few things together. Uh, Bill's done more than I have, and he can tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, there, there are a lot of endangered plants. Uh, I forget the list, but there are literally well, well over 100 it's endangered over 100. plants on, on the list in Georgia, of which are on a on a list and, and a plan For the uh, georgia conservancy the dnr you know all the folks that are a part of this this group in doing that to come up with botanical guardians of which bill and i are both botanical guardians to actually take on a plant or two or three out of this list and to go out and uh, do restorations to go out and do salvage you know when they're they're sort of getting in danger from from whatever might be in the area and one of the things that Bill and I recently did we just go up and uh, because we don't have forest fires the way we did anymore, you know, we had a we had some. It's not plant- because
0: we don't have them, we just don't allow them. We
2: don't allow them, and if you know if somebody starts a little one or if lightning hits somewhere, we get it put out real quick. Okay, and a lot of these plants that are endangered are because they need a burn. Okay, so they're doing control burns in some of these areas to to try to do that. But sometimes you just have to go down and and cut down some some non-rare things around the area to give a little more light so the the environment, the microclimate these particular plants need can stay there for them. So we've recently done something like that.
0: When you join an organization like this, are you assigned a couple of plants or do you just choose one off the list or do you do it based on your location so it's kind of close to where you live and you don't have to travel or (laughs) just kind of how does that work if somebody's interested in getting involved?
1: I think that's an all of the above.
0: All of the above.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so you I, pick and choose, and if they have a need, they will try to... Well, it's the need.
2: You, okay. That yeah. drives more than anything else. There are certain needs out there. There are certain plants in certain areas that need a guardian, okay? Okay. Uh, it's kind of the thing, though, is there's not, just a, there's not just a process, a place you can go sign up to become a botanical guardian. What you do is you get started with a nature center, you get started with a native plant garden somewhere, and you learn from the people that are there what the needs are and what you might can do. You learn a little bit about the plants, okay? And then it evolves over a period of time. You might be asked by someone, you know, to take or, a certain plant there, and become there is a guardian. A,
1: there is a website for the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance, and you can go to that website and you can sign up to be a botanical guardian, all right? And, and then there will be some kind of meeting of the minds. Uh, you, you get uh, an introduction to what the organization does, um, and if there is an agreement on a particular plant that they need help with and you are comfortable doing whatever, uh, whatever monitoring, whatever site preparation, whatever whatever needs to be done, then then, then you are off and running
2: and you usually get started you know working with an experienced person so you're not oh, yeah. sort of on your own and doing that because there's
0: Yeah because that would be yeah. kind of uh, intimidating really <laughs> right. to think when you say that it's on the extinct list or uh, not the endangered. Extinct, endangered list excuse me to become extinct what's the l- lowest number of plants that you've ever experienced that they got down to like one or two i mean is it Yeah it really gets down to, like,
1: that Charlie, numbers
0: that you can count.
1: Oh, Charlie and I are involved with uh, one of the plants that we're involved with is something called Georgia Rock Crest. That, um has populations along the Chattahoochee River and along a couple other rivers in north Georgia. Well, one population of this was found in the Rome area, and there was a single plant left. That was all that was left of this genetic genotype of, of this plant. It was the seeds were harvested, they were taken back to the State Botanical Garden, additional plants were grown. And that is the stock that single plant is the stock that we're using in part to reintroduce this to the wild.
0: That's really scary to me. Now,
2: it might not have been the only one, but it's the only one we knew about. They found. Okay.
0: Well it's yeah. not that okay. the plant
1: it's not that the plant in general is down to one. But, in this
0: but it's, it's
1: in in this population, the plant was down to one plant,
0: okay, but I mean, you think about I just saw the IMAX movie at Fernbank about the ice age, and you know when plants animals become are on the verge of extinction, I mean it just really is it's just insane that we let. Well, in the past, we didn't have, we weren't around to intercede. But it's, I mean, it's just amazing that if we can get to one plant left, that we, it's time for us to ser- get seriously involved. You know, so we're going to take a break and come back for our last segment and kind of talk about this a little bit more because it just is, it's something that I think we all need to take care of. Be right back.
4: Hello, I'm Steve Gross. I'm the host of The Gross Reality, and we're a show that every week talks about ways to run your business better, ways to uh, improve technology that you're using to make more profits and keep your costs down. We're always looking out for you and looking out for ways to make your business more successful. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to you every Wednesday afternoon on The Gross Reality.
0: Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office.
3: Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link.
2: This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to day one with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com.
4: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Hi, this is Cheryl Linker And I'm back with our last uh, segment Of the Master Gardener Hour For this Saturday And I'm here with our guests Bill Goldstrom and Charlie Brown And we're talking about Endangered plants And It's just kind of um, amazing that we can let our plants get down to one plant, one location. And Charlie, during the break, said, you know, we can't take all the blame for this. It is kind of like the sins of our fathers because we have, you know, developed in our country for the last, you know, 300 years. And... Now we're just wiping out some of these really neat plants. And during the break, we were talking about one that Charlie and Bill was, both worked on in a dig up in Rome. So let's talk a little bit about that and see if we can get some interest in some of our listeners to get involved in their communities in saving plants.
1: Well, this, I, I, it's It's more than a community kind of thing. Uh, The the organization that Charlie and I are are talking about, the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance, is led by the State Botanical Garden, and it's a consortium of other organizations through the state. Uh, The Atlanta Botanical Garden, uh, the Chattahoochee Nature Center, uh, a couple other universities, Georgia DNR, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the State Department of Transportation, of all things, Georgia Power is part of this uh, because they have a lot of right-of-ways uh, that uh, are are home to various uh, native plants. So it's it's a, a fairly large organization in, in scope, uh, each with a representative. Um, it, it takes more than just it's, – it's more than a, a garden club in a community. Right. Uh, so I, I think the – The way that that would develop would be uh, to model the organization at the state level based on on what we have here in Georgia.
0: I think that was uh, – I never thought about that, Georgia power. I mean, think about all the lines that are all over, crisscross the state and the country, and,
1: and in and the Department of Transportation, they have rights of way off of every road, and some of the most rare plants that we have are growing in these rights of way. So the the key there is to try and get the the, the local governments uh, as well as the state governments to do something as simple as not spraying in a particular area where these these endangered plants are growing
0: well they want to keep you know they want to put their contrived wildflowers on the side of the interstates i mean that's kind of i thought
1: no in in general i think they're very receptive to uh, once they understand that there is a rare plant growing in their right-of-way i I think they're very responsive to that Um, it's just that those things have to be identified and plans put in place now the, the the DOT wants to keep the roads open and keep the roads clear, so they've they have a vested interest in in making sure that things are safe for people. But they they will accommodate the the plants if it if it can be done.
2: I might mention we had a great speaker at our most recent Georgia Native Plant Society meeting. We had a uh, Dr. Jarrett Daniels, uh, who is a uh, from the University of Florida, and uh, he's an entomologist also by training, but he is into pollinators. He's doing a lot of research on pollinators. Many have heard of uh, the collapse in honeybees in this country and some of the bee decline and the pollinator dangers that we face and a lot of concern there. Even do are we going to have enough pollinators for our crops? You know, in the future and so forth. Right. But he's he's doing several research projects. One of those was relating to what we're talking about here, and uh, you can Google and find out some more about that. But he's actually working with the state there in Florida uh, for right aways on putting native plants and putting prairie plants and trying to find the right mix of those native plants to support pollinators so he's doing research and actually counting the pollinators that come to different areas and of course one of his problems is training the crews not to come mow that every two weeks or every month or whatever it might be because the these particular plants don't live on that kind of cycle and so there's a there's a Collaboration and cooperation with the, uh, you know, the state transportation department down there and doing this. But he's doing a lot of research, which I think is going to help all of us in that regard to try to use these areas that Bill's talking about uh, more effectively in, uh, in creating habitat and in, in, in supporting them. Because if the, you
0: think about, I mean, our highway system, I mean, it's, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, millions and well, millions of acres. And it and gives
2: and that connectivity that Bill was talking about earlier, if you do it right. Mm-hmm.
0: There was a... um a bridge built in canada um i don't know exactly where it was but it was a a bridge that was built over an interstate system a major interstate system in canada so that the animals could pass over the interstate and it was all you know it was like a a bridge covered with dirt covered with all the native plants to lure the bears and the elk and all these animals across the interstate. So, I mean, you could actually do something. I mean, what you're talking about is exactly the corridor system going down to keep the pollinators alive and giving them a place to go.
2: Support them, yeah. To support them. And we we have a lot of native pollinators that people don't notice or see. It's not just the honeybees. You know, honeybees are not native. They've been introduced here to try to... Uh, po- pollinate the crops. When you have large crops, you don't have enough of the native there. You, so you're sort of putting things out of balance by creating this artificial whatever you got there, whether it's... Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, other other insects pollinate. You know, they go they're, from... They're I mean, there of, are all kinds of yes. of bugs that are not insects that well, that's we need what, to I
1: mean, The butterfly is a butterfly
0: is a the great butterfly is the prime g- great example. But the... Um, the Native Plant Society, when when he spoke, I mean, I just think that if he would, I mean, he would be another great speaker for people to, you know, have at their meetings for Georgia, for Master Gardener meetings and that type of thing. So is he easy to come by for a speaker? Well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't did, know. I don't
2: know what his schedule is yeah, there, but yeah. like I say, he did a great job for us and came up from down from University of Florida. and Did have to come a little ways, but uh, yeah. And, and he sort of made a he made a, a coupling. He spoke to another organization while he was here, so he coupled it. So he you know got two organizations with his trip. We had about 150 folks there at the Atlanta Botanical Garden for our Native Plant Society meeting. So pretty good audience, but again, we need to get the word to a lot more people, and then. All of us as individuals need to find out what we can do in our own area to then marshal support and and get a movement going to to start making a difference.
0: Well, you know, we have listeners on this show, you know, California, Texas, like really all over. So I know you guys get bored hearing us always talk about Atlanta and Georgia and the Chattahoochee River and, you know, our our plants that we have in Georgia, but it's kind of goes. You're in the same situation, no matter what state or what part of the country you live in, because I'm sure you've had a lot of uh, development and you know a lot of things need to be tended to and taken care of. But the um, just a couple of last things to kind of wrap this up. The natives, I think. They're gorgeous. I mean, people can love them. People can have them in their yard, and they make their property look great. It doesn't have to be roses and hydrangeas in Atlanta. I mean, they flower, they bloom, they you know they're just when you get start learning about natives. I know one of the um, the leaders at the Chattahoochee Nature Center, Lisa Cole, is just great at designing with natives in like a suburban. You know, acre lot, and I think that's really, really key to, you know, enlist help with somebody that's like and that. M- and
2: most of us need help, even if we're like Bill and I into native plants. You know, we're not landscapers, okay? Right. <laughs> and so, just putting a native plant down at some place in your yard isn't going to create necessarily the effect you want. So, most of us do need some help in trying to, to landscape with natives and doing that. And
0: uh, I know she really helped me. I had an, an area around a, a pond that I have and. You know, I needed, I wanted to fill in some areas, but I wanted to do it with natives, and she was just great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she knew what it looked like. She gave me the plant. You know, I bought the plants and got them in, and they are just, like, doing so well because they do well. They're yeah. easier to tend to. <laughs> They're easier to take care of.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they, they know the area. They, they know the, the bugs. They know the temperatures. They know the humidity so yeah they're 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 all set to go
2: and and one real important part is you have to create a critical mass with some of the natives to, right. to to create habitat that's a one plant of this and that and whatever doesn't do it you know to create habitat,
0: yeah, well, Lisa was great. I mean she gave me the numbers, she said they're going to be this size you need this to attract and and uh, you know I've talked to other landscape you know people I know that are landscape designers and They never even remotely recommended using a native. You know, they didn't. You know, they didn't even. I don't think they'd probably even heard of some of the plants that she suggested. So I think it's. You know, you got to find if you want to do some transition and change things up in your yard. I think you have to find somebody that does know what they're talking about. So, you know, if enlist a native plant landscape architect (laughs) if there is such a thing
1: there is my daughter-in-law is is very into that Uh, okay she she is a landscape architect and um she is a member of the georgia native plant society um she has received her certificate native plants from the university so she's she's very in tune with that
0: does she publicize herself as that
1: no she's uh she, she works for a large larger company, and, and mm-hmm. but, but I think her plant palette would include native plants wherever it could.
0: There you go. I mean, that's good. And especially, I mean, I, I just like was shocked at the nature center, all the different types of azaleas that are, na- that are native. And when you go to most of your nurseries, you just do not see them. <laughs> I mean, like none. And they just... I mean, I put like, I don't know, nine in, and they're just like, poof, they're doing great. Well,
1: the nice they're thing doing great. about the native azaleas also is that they have, when you look at the, the list of native azaleas, they have a blooming season that starts in early March and goes through July. Right. So you, you, you will if you put one or two of each kind in, in your yard, you will have azalea blooms for a huge right. amount of time. Right.
0: I was working with a lady at the plant cell at the Chattahoochee Nature Center, and she had bought some fragrant native azaleas. And she wanted to come back and buy another fragrant type that bloomed at a different time, exactly what you're saying. And she wanted to make her own, you know, like so said, she would have the fragrance of these azaleas in her yard. Mm -hmm. And you had to applaud her for that. Well, guys, it's been great having you here. And I think... Everyone has learned a lot about natives and actually saving endangered plants. And I want to thank you both for sharing your knowledge and the organizations that you belong to so that everybody can, you know, get on board a little bit more in this with this direction and hopefully have learned a lot. Thank you both.
1: Well, thank you for having
0: us. And we will see you next week, or not see you, but you can hear us next week on the Master Gardener Hour. Have a great week and be safe.